My name is Patrick Nugent. On June 23, 2019, I started walking with Jesus. Come hear my story and the story of so many others whose lives have been changed by their walks with Him. Come walk with us. Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? No, that won't be it either. And I won't be doing any more singing on the show. Wait a minute, that's a lie. I'll probably sing again. Thanks for joining us today on Walking with Jesus. We have a double-length episode with a clinical psychologist, and we dive into so many deep topics. We talk about how faith and mental health don't always overlap. The reality is that there is suffering in life, mm. and we work really hard to avoid that. And yeah. I think for a lot of Christians, it almost feels shameful mm. to admit we also get the chance to discuss how living our own truth might be distorting our faith. The truth that you might have had at the age of 16, you know, is based on your experiences and the knowledge mm -hmm. that you have at that point. Mm -hmm. But we know that developmentally, some of those experiences that are coming down the road are going to impact how you view things, what your worldview is. And so your truth could potentially change. Well, if the truth cannot stay constant over someone's developmental lifespan, then is it a truth or is it just a belief? It's a longer episode, so let's jump right in. Thanks for walking with us. I'm here today with Jill Green, who is a limited licensed psychologist, a master level psychologist licensed in Michigan. And I am thrilled to have her here to begin the faith in mental health discussion because these are two things that, that go hand in hand, and too often today, we are led to believe that as people of faith, we're not allowed to be concerned with mental health, that Jesus and God will take care of all of that for us, and if there's something wrong, well, we ought to just pray more. And so I'm here to, to discuss some of these things that we face here in, uh, as, as people walking with Jesus. So, Jill, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, thank you, Patrick, for having me on your show. I just really am very excited to be here. Um, again, my name is Jill Green. I'm a limited licensed psychologist, which means I'm a master's level psychologist that's licensed in the state of Michigan, and I work under the clinical supervision of a PhD psychologist. Awesome. I've been in practice for close to 25 years now, um, so I've got a little bit of experience. <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> Would you mind sharing a little bit of your faith background? Sure, I'd love to. I was probably about six or seven, when I remember my parents had neighbors who came over and prayed with my parents, and they dedicated their lives to Jesus at that time. Um, so I've been around it for a while. My mom has always been like um, very much into scripture, very much into history around the Bible. Um, oddly enough, though, we didn't really go to church that much. She was never like a big fan of organized religion. So I didn't have that exposure, but she talked a lot about it, always read me Bible stories. I think I was about maybe 16 when I made my own decision to become saved and um, commit my life to Jesus. And at 16, you know, everything is intense. And um, probably like midway through college, and your 20s, you know, you want to have fun. You don't want to be restricted by following the rules. And so I would say that my path has been one of um, kind of like the prodigal daughter, you know, back and forth, um, backsliding, um, coming back into it in an intense way. And so when I was about early 30s, I had a friend who was dying of cancer. I had been downsized at work. And I was engaged to a man who had grown up Episcopalian and thought that he was a Christian. You know, that's how he identified. But it really wasn't a central uh, part of his life. And when I was going through all of these other overwhelming situations, I started going to church. And he was not very pleased about that. And so his comment to me, I will always remember this, was, I thought you were smarter than that. Needless to say, I ended that engagement. We did not get married. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think like most people, it's there's the belief 
and we all get overwhelmed by life. We have questions for God. Why am I going through this, that, or the other thing? Um, I've been really angry at God, you know, kind of like pouted and walked away for a while. Um, but he's always been there and he's always been present. And it's something that I always come back to. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. The way God shapes our lives and, and builds them together so that we serve him, but at the same time, pursue our passions and pursue the things that, that we want to do. You mentioned being the prodigal daughter. The prodigal son is absolutely my favorite parable of Jesus, uh, because I think without that one, I would constantly be worried that I have out the love of the father and that, that there's yeah. no way he could love me after the things that I have done. And so, yeah. so that's absolutely one of my favorites. So it's neat to hear you, you share some of that as well. How did your path lead you to study psychology and, and, and lead you into this career path? Well, um, I will say I did not study psychology okay. as an undergraduate. Um, I had a sociology minor. Right. <laughs> um, I actually was a history and French major, oh. and I was going to be a history professor. I don't know. I just kind of wasn't after partway through my program. I love history, but academia just didn't seem as appealing. Mm. I wasn't really interested in research and publishing. And around this time, um, there was some extended family drama that impacted my family mm -hmm. pretty significantly. And I tried to look like I was managing that pretty well, um, but I really wasn't. And so it caught up with me, and uh, partway through my undergraduate years, I developed panic attacks, oh. some pretty intense panic attacks, and that went on for about a mm, year and a half. I was, like, at the emergency room, went to the doctor multiple oh, wow. times. Um, they were testing me for medical issues, wow. um, but everything came back negative, and you know, this was like, what, late 80s, early 90s. And mental health really was not something that was pushed or even sure. considered. And so there was not a single doctor who ever said, Jill, you know, I think you're probably just having a panic attack. Mm. Um, I figured that out on my own and um, started doing some research about how better to help this and um, read a really interesting article about allowing yourself, giving yourself permission to have a panic attack, yeah. which I thought was the, the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard of in my entire <laughs> life. And they offered some suggestions for visualization work to help relax your body. Because when you're, when you're going through a panic attack, typically you uh, tighten everything in your body trying to ward off the panic attack. Sure. And it actually, you know, increases the severity, uh, the duration, and the frequency of a panic attack. I was like, well, I don't have anything to lose at this point. So I did it, and it worked. Huh. And my panic attack stopped, and it's what... 30 years later, and I've never had another one. So hmm. um, That's amazing. it was at that point that I'm like, okay, I, I kind of understand the struggles that people who are going through anxiety, going through mm. depression. Um, yeah. I grew up with a mom who had been through some significant trauma in childhood. She had been four years old when her father and seven-year-old brother died in a house fire oh my. that she and my grandmother got out of. But wow. she remembers, you know, seeing them burnt up and all of that. And so I saw the effects of trauma. And I, you know, I'd always listened to all of these stories. I was always the friend who listened to everyone's problems. Mm. And so when I graduated with my history degree, I thought, okay, I don't know what I want to do. And took a couple years off and uh, talked with someone who said, hey, you know, I'm in this counseling psychology program, and it's really kind of cool and interesting, and it's sort of a newer program. And I thought, mm. wow, I'm, I'm pulled in this direction, like helping people. And I think my goal was, like, I wanted a, a meaningful career that left a compassionate footprint. That's my circuitous journey into the world of becoming a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That 
what an amazing story. I love hearing people's stories about how they've come to serve and, and, and be in the careers that they're in. And, and I'm very thankful for you sharing your personal story on, on how you got into that. You mentioned that, that there was a couple of years that you kind of took off before pursuing your, your master's degree. Did you have a career in my, so you, you mentioned that you wanted to be a history teacher. You, first of all, you're the second guest on, on the show who wanted to pursue a career as a history teacher. My, my brother, Ben, who was guest number one Mm -hmm. is, uh, is, is person number one who was pursuing a, a degree to become a history teacher. So oh, interesting. I don't know if there's something to that uh, <laughs> or, or not, but it's, it's still fascinating to me. As you are a woman of faith and, and a woman who your entire life is dedicated towards building better mental health practices in mm-hmm. people, do you think that there are myths about the overlap of faith and mental health in our society today? I think there are, um, you know, particularly coming from the Christian community, Mm -hmm. you know, something that I hear a lot is, um, I actually had a client say this not long ago that someone had said to her when she told them at church that she was going through depression, their comment was, well, where's your faith? Mm. And I think that sometimes the perception, especially from the Christian community is that if you're a person of faith that you shouldn't have a mental health issue, Hmm. that um, a divine miracle or the protection of Jesus somehow is going to prevent you from ever experiencing these very common disorders. And I, that saddens me because I think that we all as human beings get overwhelmed at times. We're anxious, we're depressed. We go through traumatic situations. There's a lot to manage in life. The, tendency of the Christian community to go to counseling Mm -hmm. or to be on medication. They've been a little bit slower, you know, to um, show up for some of that. I think Jesus uses all of us in different ways. We all would love to have the divine miracle that, you know, the heavens part and the angels sing and suddenly the whole (laughs) entire Um, mental health issue is gone and we're never going to go through this ever again. And the reality is that there is suffering in life Mm. and we work really hard to avoid that. And I think for a lot of Christians, it almost feels shameful Mm. to admit that they have, even though they have Jesus in their life, that they are going through this as well. I think that we're all here to help each other. Like we're an extension and a representation of Jesus. And we all can show compassion and we can all help one another out. And there are times where medication and counseling is completely warranted, no matter what your faith background is. Of course. Wow. The first thing that comes to mind after hearing about suffering is, is second Corinthians in, in chapter four, Paul talks about we suffer so that we can share in the suffering of Jesus um, so that we can better reflect his light. That doesn't make suffering any easier, though. It doesn't make it any easier to feel. It doesn't make it any easier to get to get crushed. I heard a pastor once say, you know, we have all this bright light inside of us, but if we don't get cracked or broken, that light's never is never able to shine outside of us, that we have to be broken in order for the light to come through. Oh, that's a really nice way to put it. Um, I loved it. I thought it was beautiful that suffering mm-hmm. is such an important thing. And so, but I know for myself personally, um, that suffering became overwhelming, that, that the, the idea of suffering led me to severe depression, even a couple of suicide attempts, mm-hmm. uh, that, that just because I didn't think I could live through the suffering, I didn't think that I would be able to survive the suffering. And so that led to this vicious cycle of of shame and depression just like stacking on top of one another that that yeah. i'm depressed so i'm ashamed and i'm ashamed because i'm depressed and not and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse to the point that i feel like the only way out is to end it and obviously this was before i started my walk but when you are with clients who are at that level of depression and shame and everything. 
how does that treatment start when someone comes to you and they're just kind of at the end, regardless of whether or not they're a believer, mm-hmm. where does that treatment begin? I mean, if it's, if we're talking like they are actively thinking of suicide and they are planning not to be here anymore, you know, then obviously safety is the number one intervention. Mm-hmm. Like we have mm-hmm. to get them stabilized. Yeah. And typically that is going to require, you know, sending them to the emergency room, mm-hmm. possible hospitalization. Um, beyond that, like once they have stabilized, we are looking at what are the symptoms? What is the the origin of this? Was there a trigger? Is there a recent circumstance, like they lost mm-hmm. their job and they're going to lose their home? And what resources do they need? Mm-hmm. Um, then we also might be dealing with someone with a significant history of trauma. And is that now starting to play out in a way that these symptoms, this is the reason why these symptoms are present. I so it, it's really dependent on the circumstances, um, the origin point and, you know, how they're doing and what resources that we need to put in place. So it, it gets tailored based on every situation. Sure. But safety is the primary issue at, at a moment like that. Yeah. Is depression and anxiety, does that rank near the top of, of some of the, the symptoms or issues that you treat on a daily basis? I would say definitely, especially since the pandemic, um, anxiety and depression have just been, um, exponentially growing since the pandemic. Um, I mean, that's something that typically in our field, especially in more of an outpatient setting that we deal with on a regular basis, but those numbers have definitely increased as well as the people who have needed medication to help manage some of those symptoms. But the other growing trend, um, I mean, trauma has always been an area, you know, that we've done a lot of um, work with and Mm -hmm. treatment for. Um, Trauma is one of my specialties, but we are seeing more and more and more people who are coming in who will start to list, you know, from childhood on um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional and mental abuse. And then you add in other situations like they were a teller at a bank and they got robbed at gunpoint on top of everything, you know, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. trauma will build on itself. And, um, unless it's treated, those things can become really overwhelming. Yeah. So when people come to see you, they come to see you because they want to feel different. Oh, definitely. Okay. I I think they just want to feel happier. Okay. Or at the very least, have an absence of the symptoms that they are currently having. I mean, sometimes people can't really identify what their goal is or what they necessarily want. It's just, I want to feel better. I don't want to feel like this. And they're really, I think, looking to get out of that suffering that they're currently in. Okay. You mentioned that, that they want to feel happier. Um, happiness seems to be an overwhelmingly powerful tool being used, uh, that, that everyone should live their truth. Everyone should, should be happy that you should Mm -hmm. constantly be seeking happiness. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's realistic to, to, to be happy all the time? No, no. Um, I really don't. I mean, life is full of a wide variety of emotions and experiences and, it would be lovely to be happy all the time. And again, I also want to know what their definition of happiness is. Yeah. Are we talking about contentment or are we talking euphoria? Um, because there is a big difference between mm. those two states. And I just think that it's unrealistic to expect that anything is going to last forever emotionally. Yeah. That um, if you're miserable today, Give it a few hours, maybe a couple of days or a week, and that experience is going to pass too. And it's much the same thing for happiness. So personally, I find that to be an unrealistic goal for some people. Sure. You mentioned the difference between euphoria and contentment. Would you expand, unpack that a little bit uh, in terms of the difference between those two feelings? I would put euphoria more in 
like the pleasure category. Okay. Versus happiness. Okay. And we can talk a little bit more about the difference between those two, but I think happiness is a like a quieter emotion in some way. Yeah. That okay. it's contentment, it's satisfaction, it's being content basically with where you're at in this moment in time. Right. Um, euphoria is this, like when you fall in love, you know, when mm. um, everything is just feeling so incredibly intense, which really is related to a dopamine surge. Mm. Um, but that, to me, that falls more into that pleasure category than happiness. I see. Let's just jump right into the difference between pleasure and happiness in our brains. Okay. So, I mean, there is a difference in the neurotransmitters and the location within the brain where these experiences show up. Okay. Happiness occurs in a state of safety. Okay. And again, like we mentioned before, it could be like better descriptors might be satisfaction and contentment. And the neurotransmitters that are involved in happiness are serotonin and GABA. GABA is related to relaxation. Serotonin, we know, you know, has an impact on mood. If there's a Mm -hmm. reduction of serotonin, that often leads to depression. But it is also a neurotransmitter that's involved in connection. So those are the neurotransmitters that get released in a state of happiness. So the areas of the brain that get activated during happiness are like the right frontal cortex, the left amygdala, the left insula. And so it's got a very different um, localization than pleasure. So pleasure, on the other hand, is chemically mediated by dopamine. With dopamine, like the first major dopamine neurotransmitter pathway is in the midbrain, and it's something called the ventral tegmental area, or the VTA. That is the reward center and the pleasure center, and it's connected to a lot of other systems within the brain. Mm-hmm. But this is where dopamine, is the, that is their main pathway. Yeah. And so with that, you've got this associated then with addictions. Like, who doesn't want to feel good? You know, yeah, we'll of course. do some drugs, we'll drink to have sex, gamble, like all of this stuff. And there's a great dopamine surge. And now that's paired with that behavior. Mm. And when it's like, you know, something that feels good in the moment, maybe it's not an addiction. Maybe it's just like getting likes on your Facebook post or whatever it might be. Like, here's that dopamine surge. This feels really good. Well, I'm going to do this again because now there is that association Mm -hmm. with that feeling and that behavior. But the interesting thing about dopamine is, or pleasure, I should say, that with pleasure, it can exist in a state of both safety and a state of threat. Now, remember, happiness only exists in a state of safety. Like if you're feeling threatened, you're not happy, most likely. Because it can exist in both of those states. So like under a state of threat, maybe this is a better example. Let's say you've been bullied on the playground. And you finally stand up for yourself and you punch this other kid in the nose and you knock him down and he leaves you alone and everyone's cheering and it feels really good. You got a dopamine surge in a state of threat, which now has been linked with aggression. So in a state of safety, a dopamine surge can create confidence and motivation, but in a state of threat, it can create aggression and conflict. I see. So people who lash out at other people all the time, they are actually now have created their own dopamine surge. And there is this association. And I'm just going to read like this little, this will probably explain it far better than I can. It was an article on psychology today. And it said, if we achieve what we want in either of these physiological states, then we get a little more dopamine and a little more pleasure. Our emotions and behaviors are reinforced we will seek to replicate the strategies we deployed. <laughs> so happiness exists often without the dopamine. Okay. But pleasure cannot exist without dopamine. I understand. I have a question. When I drink, 
Mm-hmm. I receive that pleasure right away that, uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the relief that comes from whatever mm-hmm. stress or anxiety that supposedly mm-hmm. takes away. But most mornings that I would wake up after drinking, I would have a lot of shame and regret, um, even not knowing what I had done the night before. You know, I was a blackout drinker. And so mm-hmm. not having not feeling good about what I had done. So drinking tied together with that relief the night of, and then shame and discomfort the next morning. Mm-hmm. Why did I keep doing it? If I knew that I was going to wake up with, with these shame and, and discomfort and worry and all of that, why did I keep going back to that? Well, so to speak, it, I, obviously you can't, you weren't with me when I was mm-hmm. drinking. But you understand the question that I'm asking. Yeah. If it's tied to negative feelings, mm-hmm. why was I so ready to go back? All I mean, by the by the later that night, mm-hmm. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd feel awful mm-hmm. about myself, I'd feel awful physically, mm-hmm. and then six, seven, ten hours later, go all right, time to do that again. Why? Well, I think that that is a. There are many variables in that. One mm-hmm. of them, obviously, is this chemical surge of dopamine. Mm-hmm. People want that feeling. It's not that you're consciously thinking about it, but whatever, I find that most of those type of addiction behaviors are there to cover up uncomfortable feelings or a mental health condition. And that momentary pleasure is what we're seeking. And then the long-term consequences that come from it later on, it's like, ah, I'll deal with that later. Mm, and, okay. um, you know, for some people that, that becomes a very prevalent pattern in their life and the long-term consequences take over. I'm not yeah. an addiction specialist, so I wouldn't try to pretend like I understand, you know, all of that or that I could explain <laughs> it that well. With dopamine, we are still willing, like for that surge, we're still willing to deal with the danger or the threat that's involved in the behavior that is creating the dopamine surge. I gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I've often wondered that I, when I was still drinking, I wondered that more often than I do now, you know, knowing I would wake up and I feel gross. I I feel icky mentally and physically. And I, but I also at the same time knew, well, later tonight I'll drink again and and maybe it will feel different this time. Mm I read recently that that with social media and getting likes on social media and people liking your posts and your pictures and all that, Mm -hmm. that that actually provides a dopamine surge. Mm -hmm. So we are getting an unnatural amount of dopamine on a daily basis. And and Mm -hmm. apparently what that's doing is making the highs higher, but also making the lows much lower. Do you find that that's true in terms of the clientele that you're serving? Oh, I think so. I mean, social media has created this um, illusion of, um, like, when people get a, a, a bunch of likes for any one of their posts, it's going to obviously make you feel good. Sure. You know, so there's a little dopamine neurotransmitter yeah. that's getting released at that point, And you've now paired that with that particular behavior. Mm-hmm. So you want more of that. Um, so I think along with like addictions and some other things, it's interesting how dopamine can exist in a state of both safety and threat. This is fascinating to me because I am, you know, I'm an addict. I have an addictive personality, so to speak, where I experience highs and I've built in my life, have built a ton of neuropathways for those dopamine releases being tied to alcohol or other things. And, and now that I've removed alcohol from my life, mm-hmm. I often feel the, the lack of, of that dopamine release and, and say, you know, I wish I had that, which actually in a weird way leads me into my next question. And that is, mm-hmm. do you believe, or do you think that our minds are wired to worship something? Do you think that, that, that neural pathway, whether it be God or a higher power or something else? Are we predestined to be worshiping something? I don't know. I mean, that's like a really tough question. Yeah, it's um, deep. 
I would say, like, my gut reaction is to say no. Okay. I don't think that our minds are wired for worship. And the reason I say that is when I talk to clients and friends and people that I know who talk about prayer, mm-hmm. I have people who will say, A, I don't know how to pray. B, I fall asleep during prayer. My <laughs> mind gets really distracted. I can't mm-hmm. stay on task. I would be curious to know more about like that definition of worship, like specifically sure. what we're looking at. Okay. Historically, when you look at past cultures um, throughout the years, you know, you had people who worshiped the sun and the mm-hmm. moon and nature. And what, when you really kind of look at it, and I could be wrong about this because I'm not an expert, but it's like every time they're, they were involved in worship, it was in order to get something. I see. Better crops, fertility. Even when you look at the Gospels and you see people believed in Jesus after he did a miracle for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like once they got something that mattered to them, then there's like some worship involved. You know, from, from a Christian standpoint, I wonder if, just to say that our soul craves a higher power to worship. Yeah. I don't know that our mind is built to do that and just worship something to worship an entity that we don't see physically. So I could be wrong about that, but it seems like there's almost always something that they can visibly see and touch and that there's going to be something that they get out of it. I see. Not always though. Okay. When you you look at the story of of, um, Moses going up on the mountain to get the 10 commandments and Aaron's left behind and everyone's like, well, we just want to worship something, you know, so like build a golden yeah, calf. Yeah, a golden and, calf. <laughs> um, so I don't know, you know, I, I guess yeah. I'm not 100% certain about if they want to worship something or they need something from what they're worshiping. I see. Okay. I appreciate that distinction. Um, the golden calf was the first thing that I came, that came to mind when you mentioned needing something f- tangible, something physical. Mm-hmm. In our society today and in the, in the American culture around us, there are so many different tangible things that we're kind of guided towards pushing to worship. Uh, in a consumer culture, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we do nothing but consume and consume and, con- and we're, we're pushed to that end. At least from what I can see, we're we're pushed to consume and then that worship becomes something else that that it's whether it be money or whether it be something else. You know, Jesus talks about money more than anything else in the in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And and I look at a consumer culture that is probably driven by money or the acquisition of money and then the things that Mm -hmm. come along with it. And I see in advertising, for example, there are so many direct ads that say, you know, whether they use these words or different words, they say buying our product or consuming our product will make you happy or will achieve for you some feeling that that you can't get any other way. Psychologically speaking, I think I read somewhere that in the late 1960s and early 1970s was when psychology really had a big breakthrough in terms of how our buying brain works. And now they're able to make advertisements that guide our emotions and twist our emotions into, oh, I have to get that. That's something I have to do. And they've just gotten better and better at it. As a salesman, we've learned, don't sell the steak, sell the sizzle. And, and I think that's what <laughs> modern day advertising is doing. And it's creating this massive need for consumption in order to achieve happiness. If consuming something, whether it be a like on Facebook or a chocolate milkshake, in my case, a chocolate malt, in my case, is is what makes us happy. That's a, a dopamine release. And if I'm doing things that make me happy and it's not hurting anybody else, is that OK? Is it OK for me to, to say, no, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, it's OK for me to do that? Well, I guess the question then is, you know, is it hurting anyone else? Like sometimes what might make you happy or bring you pleasure, and I'm going to use an extreme circumstance here of um, someone who molests children. Hmm. For them, it's like, well, you know, this is kind of something that makes me feel better. 
maybe momentarily, they might have tremendous guilt about it afterwards, but that cycle is something that obviously impacts the child, impacts the family. So what makes them happy may not make someone else happy. Mm. And sometimes if you have no conscience, then you don't believe that you're really hurting anyone else. Mm. So there's that piece. You know, I mean, I've joked with some of my friends that we should probably just have our national anthem or the world anthem be Cheryl Crow's song, If It Makes You Happy, It Can't Be That Bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. But, um, you know, both their happiness and then living their truth. You know, you hear that phrase all the time. This is my yeah. truth. I'm living my truth. Okay, so let's be use some logic in that statement. The truth that you might have had at the age of 16, you know, is based on your experiences and the knowledge mm -hmm. that you have at that point. Mm -hmm. But we know that developmentally, some of those experiences that are coming down the road are going to impact how you view things, what your worldview is, and so your truth could potentially change. Well, if the truth cannot stay constant over someone's developmental lifespan, then is it a truth mm. or is it just a belief? Wow. That, you just blew my brain up. So I'm going to have to take a second to reassemble. Do you think that as a culture, we are leaning more toward the way we feel versus what is actually true or what is factual? That, that as long as you feel like it, you're good, then it doesn't really matter. Like the, the truth doesn't really matter. A very common saying that I hear, especially with younger clients, is I'm all in my feelings. <laughs> which is very specific and okay. makes me kind of laugh. Um, but <laughs> there is a trend that I have seen um, over the years, and this has been going on for a while, where okay. feelings become more valued than intellect, logic, reason, and neither of them is more important than the other. Okay, Like feelings have a very important aspect in our lives. They, they're valid, they have value, but they can't dictate everything because then that's your justification for all of your behaviors. Mm. If you're angry, it doesn't give you the right, let, let's use road rage. Someone yeah. cut you off, now I'm going to tail this person down the freeway, and I'm going to speed up, and I'm going to slow down, I'm going to box them in. Like, just because you had the emotion doesn't mean that you should allow that to dictate what you do. Mm. Having a little bit of, there's a type of therapy that I've done in the past called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. Okay. And one of the um, main teachings in DBT is something called wise mind. Now, just imagine like two circles next to each other and one says emotion and the other says reason or logic. And you bring them together and you start to overlap the two edges. And that little sweet spot where they overlap is wise mind. You give space for logic and reason and being able to cognitively talk yourself down from this emotional state that you're in. Okay. But we also, like, emotion is important. Reason is important. We have to have both. So when I watch people lean a lot more heavily toward the emotion side, it's, it's a little concerning to me because that gives them free reign to do whatever they want based on their feelings. And none of us should be able to do everything that we want based on our feelings. Agreed. 100%. That is a wonderful way to kind of wrap up that part of the conversation. You mentioned wise mind. Are there daily practices or, or different things that we can do to help increase our ability to have that wise mind to meet that? A pastor at church who's a, a close friend of mine uses the, the word mandorla because that's actually what when the when you draw a Venn diagram, the overlap mm -hmm. is called the mandorla. And so that part in the middle is is where he preaches a lot of his messages are in that mandorla that like that's where balance is achieved mm -hmm. and that's where we're able to find a Christ-centered life. And so mm -hmm. there are there practices that you recommend for us to to reach that wise mind? 
I think the biggest one is the ability to have the awareness of how you feel and what you're thinking. And for some people, that is really difficult to do. That is a hard practice if you're not trained and, you know, really are in a daily practice with that. In those cases, I usually recommend to clients to really pay attention to their body cueing. Sometimes if we don't know what we're thinking and we're not really aware or we don't have a great feeling word vocabulary and can't identify what emotionally is going on, then I will ask people, do you feel it anywhere in your body? Hmm. Is your heart raising? Is your head tight? You know, is your back, you know, tight and achy? Like what's going on in your body? Because for many people who can't identify feelings and thoughts, they will be able to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm flushed, I feel really hot, my head hurts. Those are the first signs that, okay, something's going on. (laughs) Mm, And just slow down. Once you recognize that and you can tell, like, I'm really upset, I'm overwhelmed, just take a minute to do some deep breathing and kind of slow it down. And if you can identify what's going on, that really helps to kind of back up from it and not react so emotionally. So that would be like one of the first things. I think, you know, just to like keep yourself centered in general, you know, you have to have like get decent sleep, have, you know, quality nutrition, just trying to get like some movement, some kind of exercise, something, you know, exercise helps to metabolize emotion. When we've got a lot of anxious energy that's built up, I mean, that's a great way to burn out some of that. I think one Mm. of the biggest things, though, is, and I'm seeing like such changes in this, especially since the pandemic, is try to stay connected with other people. Okay. There's so much distance that's been created. I mean, both through the pandemic and I think through technology, we think that we're connected, but this is like get connected with the people that you feel that you can trust. And some people don't have a lot of people in their lives. You know, I would say that people come in depressed and feeling anxious, but when you really start talking to them, I think one of the biggest epidemics that we have is loneliness. There are a lot of people who will say to me, I don't have anyone else to talk to. That's why I came in for therapy. And that makes me really sad. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me sad too. I'm... I'm a social being, but I'm weirdly also anti. So there are, I think I'm an omnivert. I actually don't really know. There are days where I really want to be with people and around people. And then mm-hmm. there are other days where the thought of being around people makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. But, but then there are people like my wife who she could be surrounded by people all the time, 24 hours a day. And it wouldn't, she would never reach that point where her tank is empty and she needs to go off and be by herself. Okay. That's great. Uh, Yeah. And so I'm, I'm learning how different we really are in, in Mm -hmm. that way. Anyway, in terms of the wise mind, Mm -hmm. do you think that that links together with a Jesus centered life, a walk with Jesus? Do you think that that's in terms of Jesus coaching, if Jesus were here as a life mm-hmm. coach, which would be amazing. I yeah, just want to add. Uh, um, he would be the most popular life coach on planet Earth. Um, if he were here to coach us through, do you think the wise mind practices link together with, with what he scripturally would coach us into to being? I think so. You know, I mean, he was very balanced and centered in how he approached things. You can tell that there's so much thought behind the parables and he could show emotion. You know, I think a lot of people enjoy the story of his righteous indignation going into the temple and turning the tables. tables. (laughs) So he showed emotion, but he also approached the situations with a lot of contemplation and so much thoughtfulness in how he constructed his advice, his parables, you know, just the the mandates to his disciples. Hmm. So I think that he would appreciate the concept of wise mind. I mean, I can't speak for him, but... Sure, of course. <laughs> um, I, I think that he would appreciate that. And, you know, with wise mind comes a lot of mindfulness work. Mm-hmm. So being able to focus on one thing try to remove your distractions, meditation, which actually has a very strong biblical background. You can find a lot of 
um, psalms that talk about, you know, meditating on his word. Mm-hmm. Um, psalm and, 1. It's like the first thing in Psalm 1 is meditate yeah. on these words day and night. Right. I think a lot of the concepts that are used in in our field actually do have an overlap with biblical principles. You know, prayer is not something that everyone is going to want to do if they're not religious in any way. And, you know, I respect that. Of course. A lot of people like mindfulness. A lot of people Mm -hmm. like meditation. I think with Christian meditation, it's different, though, because you're meditating on Scripture and bringing God's Word into your being instead of trying to just empty your mind of its distractions and just be aware of what you're feeling and accept that. I think there's a little bit of a difference in the approaches. Okay. Yeah. We have released one episode on the podcast here of meditating on God's word. And actually we plan to do a monthly meditation Monday. The first Monday of every month, we'll release a different guided meditation on God's word, really just to kind of help people learn one way to approach doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, I also know that right now there is lots of talk in the, at least in the mental health world that I'm exposed to, there is a lot of talk about gratitude, about mm-hmm. practicing a daily gratitude. Uh, mm-hmm. Sean Acor wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. Mm-hmm. And in that book, one of the number one things that he talks about as a key indicator for happiness is whether or not that the patient is practicing gratitude. That oftentimes, he says there are two leading indicators. One is practicing gratitude and the other is physical movement. A happier patient is someone who's more likely to be practicing gratitude and also be physically active, not necessarily mm-hmm. exercising every day, mm-hmm. but at least making a point to move their body. Right. So there's, you know, a practice of gratitude that's becoming a big thing. Mm-hmm. Also, empathy. I hear a lot of, of people talking about the word empathy, mm-hmm. compassion. Do you think that all of that has an overlap with biblical practices? I think that it does. You know, we talk a lot about developing empathy. You know, there's some concern as we look around in our society today. And for all the talk of empathy, it seems like it's actually reducing rather than Mm. increasing in many ways. I think that gratitude is something that we all can, you know, benefit from practicing. Sure. um, Because it's very easy to get caught up in the negative things, to only see what isn't the way we want it to be. Mm, Um, but there's always something if you look around, um, whether it's comparing yourself to someone else in their situation or just being able to be appreciative for one small thing throughout the day. I think that those are very important practices to have in your life and compassion. I think it's both like we're called to do this. We are called as Christians to be compassionate to each other and to people who do not believe. And to not react in an angry way um, if we're offended. Our culture today is (laughs) we're very reactive if we're offended or we feel that our, you know, someone has wounded us in some way. And I think we really need to step back and ask ourselves instead of reacting, like ask yourself, okay, what what has this person been going through? Mm. Not like what's the matter with them? But what have they been going through? Because it really helps to keep you out of your reactive state and not mirror what they're doing. Hmm. You mentioned that we should try to imagine what that person is going through at that specific moment. Are there other things when we're involved in an interaction with another person that can help us develop that empathy and that compassion? I think listening. I mean, it sounds like such a simple tool, but you find out that, like, okay, so when most of us become new therapists, we always want to say, like, the right thing, have the right response, you know, have it all down pat. And so for about the first six months, you're really, like, in your head more than you are, you know, really listening to sure. that poor patient. Yeah. Um. And so it takes a lot to be able to just sit and listen to someone and not Mm. involve your own um, thoughts, your own opinions, 
Um, so I think one of the biggest things is to stop and listen to people. Mm-hmm. And also, the more you experience in life, I think that grows your empathy. Okay. I think anyone who's been through trying circumstances, if they can turn that into something that, hey, I understand you to some degree. I might mm-hmm. not 100% know what your circumstances are, but really asking yourself, like, how does this person feel? Yeah. What must they be thinking right now? Can I even imagine what they're going through? Like being able to have that imagination around it and see it from their experience, their worldview, their perspective. A, a lot of people today seem to want to express their perspective yeah, and have that be like the only thing that's talked about. So <laughs> I I think, you know, just letting some of that go and actually sitting and listening to people. Now, I will also say, and I'm not an expert in this area at all, but there was an article that I read a while back that um, was talking about, they were doing a study looking at younger people who they wanted to see if the empathy levels are declining. And they were talking about the use of devices, all the screens, all the phones, and that one of the theories is that there are certain neurons that are not developing because people are imprinting to a screen rather than another human being. Being able to be face-to-face with someone, see their expression, see their emotions, have an emotional reaction or response to what that other person is going through versus a screen, there is a difference in our brains and how we respond to that. And so they've actually seen like a decline in empathy scores hmm. when they start to study this. Now, to me, in my field, that's alarming. Yeah, that's alarming to me, not in your field. That's <laughs> alarming to know that there are, that that's happening. You know, I'm the father of four children and mm-hmm. it's alarming to me thinking about the amount of time they spend looking at screens, not mm-hmm. real people's faces, that that, mm-hmm. that could be detrimental to their development, their their mm-hmm. mental and emotional development. That's alarming to me as well. We talked about meditation, gratitude, mm-hmm. compassion, empathy, things like that. Is there a benefit, psychologically speaking, now this is for mostly guided for non-believers, is mm-hmm. there a benefit, psychologically speaking, to confessing, to, to, to confession? You know, Scripture tells us we must confess. First mm-hmm. John 1 9 says, we confess our sins, God is just, and he will mm-hmm. forgive us and wash us clean. Mm-hmm. But for those who don't believe in the forgiveness of Christ, is there still a benefit to, to sharing that with, with another person? So, I think there is, but at times we have to be careful about this, because mm-hmm. disclosing to someone, like, let's say... Like, we know that shame is often behind having secrets and not disclosing, like, the, you know, whether it's something that you've done or something that you believe about yourself that is very uh, negative. Telling someone else can help minimize that feeling of shame and start to bring you out of that darkness and let someone in on your experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the caveat here is it has to be with someone that you trust. Yeah. Because if you confess to someone else or you disclose, we'll just use the word disclosure and have a like a non-religious connotation there. Yeah, I appreciate that. If you disclose to someone who is then going to spread gossip about you, who mm-hmm. is going to betray you in some way, then... That will only make you more ashamed and retreat further. And that disclosure was not a good experience. Mm. So I I think we have to be careful about that. Because even within Christian circles, I have listened to people talk about, well, I told someone about this because I wanted some Christian guidance and support. And everyone else found out about it. It became like a huge betrayal. And so I don't care if you are Christian or any other type of religion or a non-believer. It doesn't really matter. The minute you have been betrayed by someone that you thought that you could trust, 
I think that that creates far more damage than we realize. Yeah. I just finished the book Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, I've watched her YouTube videos and and, uh, all the TED Talks and all of that stuff. And Mm -hmm. it... For, for everyone listening, she's brilliant. She's a, sa- a shame researcher. It, mm-hmm. She spends her life, she's dedicated her life researching shame and vulnerability, yeah. which not really the most uh, upbeat topic to, to think about and talk about. And she openly acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. In her book, she talks about like, she talks about that, but mm-hmm. she talks about how to build that trust with people and when to know what's, you know, when to know it's okay to share and and how much to share with with newer people that mm-hmm. that we're almost driven away when someone overshares like if right. you know if i just meet someone at the store and they go hey you know i was in prison for 25 years <laughs> for raping someone i'm like whoa yeah. sh- pump the brakes yeah. you shared that a little soon yeah. uh let's wait till the second date yeah. but so i appreciate you you issuing that word of caution about disclosure and and making sure that you're you're in a trusting situation we're kind of right at an hour. I know that you are hesitant to do the uh, lightning round, but I really want to ask questions. So if you're ready, we'll start the lightning round of questions. All right. All right. I know you're resistant, but here we go. (laughs) Without any, you don't have to explain. You don't have to go through any detail at all. What's your favorite book of the Bible? I like the first four gospels because it feels like with Jesus's words, it just feels more like you're with him. Yeah. I think of those, even though I really like Matthew, I, I tend to be drawn to the Gospel of John. Really? Mm-hmm. What's your favorite verse? That is very mood and situation dependent. Okay. So I have a really hard time like picking just one. Okay. I think most Christians would think, you know, like John three sixteen. Mm. And we're grateful for all of that. But um, I think Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mm. Yeah. What's your favorite movie? Is the, is the answer here the same, that it, it depends on the situation and your, your mood on your favorite um, movie? Okay, so I have categories. All right. Yeah. I, I 100% am on board with that because okay. I do too. So <laughs> I think a lot of us can appreciate the good versus evil theme mm-hmm. for and good triumphing over evil. Sure. So, I mean, for my generation, I'm a Gen Xer. I really think Star Wars is like at the top of the list. Yeah. And um, probably of the first original three, Return of the Jedi is my favorite. But I have a very soft, fond spot for Star Wars itself, the first mm-hmm. movie. Because mm-hmm. I was like maybe, I don't know, seven or something. And my parents took me to a drive-in movie theater to see it. Oh, so I will magic. always, it was like, what is this? Yeah. Are you serious? Like Magic. Yeah, it yeah. was incredible. Uh, so that will yeah. always have a, a fond spot. But the good versus evil theme. And then Gladiator comes in like kind of behind that one. All right. um, I like movies about resilience and rising above the obstacles so like shawshank redemption awesome movie pursuit of happiness finding forrester um legend of bagger vance i like all of those and then just for fun keeping the faith is hilarious and waitress i love that movie Really? All right. Mm-hmm. Keeping the faith with Ed Norton and I don't ben remember. Who he, is it Ben Stiller? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. All right. If you could have dinner with anyone, living or dead, who would you choose? Like is, I mean, is Jesus an option here? Jesus is an option. Okay. Absolutely. So, I mean, he would always be at the top of the list. You know, that's kind of like a given. Yeah. Yeah. But if we had to take him out of the equation, I think, I think it would be Daniel from the Old Testament. Really? Okay. Um, yeah. I'm so impressed with him that, like, at the age of what, 17, you know, he's taken to Babylon and lives the next 70 years until he passes away in captivity and mm. never goes against his faith. And yeah. I think, what, what was I like at 17? Like, I was not that good. Come yeah. on. So, Not prepared to commit to anything yeah, at that level. You know, he's just, <laughs> that's like an incredibly strong faith and spirit. Yeah. And um, I, I've always been really impressed with his story. What do you hope God says to you when you meet him? 
Welcome home. Nice. What's your favorite word? Mercy. What's your least favorite word? Condemnation. What noise or sound do you love? I would say a belly laugh. Like someone who genuinely is just like belly laughing. I love Mm -hmm. that. But I do have another one here, and this is like my geeky side. So I used to do singing. The scene in The Sound of Music where Julie Andrews is doing Do, Re, Mi, and it's the last Mm -hmm. note that is the high note, that just thrills me every time I hear it over and over again. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing Mm -hmm. that. What noise or sound do you hate? Children crying, particularly if it is paired with their parents yelling at them. Mm. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't a psychologist, what would you most like to do? If you could pick, if you could make a paycheck doing anything, what would you choose? Like the history side of me would probably want to be an archaeologist. Again, generationally, you know, Indiana Jones and all. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, he fits in there too. Um, The other thought would be, like, I love holistic medicine and just like reading Mm -hmm. about it and stuff like that. So maybe being a naturopath. Okay, awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Walking with Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, comment, do everything you can to share this show. We're really trying to reach as many people as possible with the gospel and everything that Jesus does for us. Stay tuned for the next episode where it will be more of my story. And I'm really excited because I've got a couple of interviews coming up with people that have absolutely incredible stories of Jesus's goodness. Blessings, everyone.